everyone. Welcome to Midcast. I'm your host, Manar Adley. Now, Joe Biden may have won the presidential election, but his victory masks a deeper rot within the American political system, one where both parties have become the servants of increasingly powerful corporations of Wall Street and of the military-industrial complex, but especially the Democratic Party, which, are, which presents itself to the public as a symbol of social justice, peace, and peace and justice. In fact, our guest today, Chris Hedges, has for years argued that the Democratic Party long ago sold its soul and turned its back on the American people and that we have lived through what he calls a corporate coup d'etat in slow motion. Chris is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who spent nearly two decades as a foreign correspondent in Central America, the Balkans and the Middle East, where he saw the bloody realities of US empire firsthand. He hosts a show now on, on RT called On Contact. He's also the author of over a dozen books, the latest of which is America, The Farewell Tour, about the potentially terminal decline of the United States. Welcome to Mintcast, Chris. Thank you. Um, in your latest article for Sheer Post, titled The Collective Suicide of the Liberal Class, um, you describe liberals in many ways, but one that I think is most relatable to most Americans is when you say, liberals largely comprised of the professional managerial class that dutifully recycles and shops for organic produce and is concentrated on two on the two coasts have profited from the ravages of neoliberalism who are the liberal class that you've described and how do we divorce ourselves from this specific character they're the technocrats the managers the corporate lawyers the bankers the financiers uh, the people who uh, run social media, digital media platforms, uh, and uh, they have done quite well uh, on, through this process of deindustrialization and uh, the offshoring of jobs and austerity programs. Uh, and so they have this kind of patina of morality where uh, they are uh, anti-racist and they are uh, against misogyny and uh, they support GBLTQ rights and they don't like Islamophobia, but this is just window dressing, uh, I think, to make the um, brutality of the particular economic system and the social inequality palatable, one. And two, I think to posit themselves as kind of moral individuals. Uh, but in fact, the policies that they have embraced by embracing the Democratic Party uh, have made war on all of those people they claim to have uh, some kind of sympathy for, in particular, people of color have suffered tremendously under neoliberalism. Uh, the, uh, when Clinton destroyed the welfare program, uh, Democratic administration, 70% of the original recipients were uh, children, uh, the explosion of mass incarceration, again, uh, a Clinton-Biden uh, project uh, that ended up uh, more than doubling our prison population, the militarization of police, the passing of all sorts of draconian uh, sentencing laws, in particular drug laws that tripled and quadrupled uh, sentences. All of this came out of uh, a Democratic Party. And I've long argued I was a supporter of Ralph Nader Right. Indeed, Ralph Speechwriter. And I think, I, I, I think Ralph understood nobody knows corporate power better in America than Ralph Nader. 
uh, and he watched that a legitimate liberal wing of the Democratic Party eviscerated and destroyed. Uh, so you had this kind of faux liberal as represented by uh, Clinton or an Obama um, and uh, realized that the only mechanism left was to create an exodus from the party, 5, 10, 15 million people that walked out. Uh, this was the only hope of pressuring the Democratic Party to adopt some liberal or perhaps progressive programs. Um, unfortunately, the, uh, the two-party system worked to crush uh, Nader's candidacy, of course, locked him out of the debate stage, challenged his voting lists, and the corporate media uh, amplified these charges, ridiculous charges, for instance, that Nader lost, uh, the elect was responsible for Bush winning in 2000, this kind of stuff. Um, so uh, it didn't work. And now we have this, uh, we have a country where 74 million people uh, support a demagogue, 70% uh, of whom, that's 51 million people, uh, uh, believe that the election was stolen. Uh, and I've long written and believed that Trump is a, a symptom. He, he, he's not the disease. Uh, he's what uh, distressed or uh, decayed societies vomit up. And I watched that in Yugoslavia. Same kind of economic breakdown and, and paralysis by a ruling elite that created these repugnant figures like Slobodan Milosevic or Franjo Tuzman or Radovan Karadzic. And, you know, and we'll get to Yugoslavia in, in, in later in the interview, um, but I'm curious to know uh, your thoughts on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and them hijacking this kind of image of social justice. I mean, you described, you talked about Bill Clinton and Obama. Um, what about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? Um, what can we expect from them? Well, we know, <clears throat> we know exactly what we can expect from them because uh, they both have long uh, track records. Uh, uh, Biden was uh, chosen by uh, Obama as his running mate because, in essence, he, he voted as a Republican. Uh, so, you know, what are we going to get from a Biden administration? Uh, we will get support for the apartheid state, uncritical and uh, unconditional support for the apartheid state of Israel. We will uh, see the continuation of wholesale government surveillance of the American public. Um, we will see these trade deals like NAFTA and uh, the continued offshoring of jobs uh, to underpaid workers in sweatshops in Mexico, China, Vietnam. Uh, we uh, will see the continuation of the world's largest prison population, 2.3 million people. Uh, although we're 4% of the world's population, we will continue to see militarized police terrorize and uh, gun down with impunity uh, poor people in our inner cities. Uh, we won't get a Green New Deal. We won't get immigration reform. Uh, oh, you will see support for fracking. Um, you will see a continuation of, in essence, a segregated public school system where wealthy communities and neighborhoods have adequate public schools and poor communities do not. In fact, are often burdened with for-profit militarized charter schools. Uh, you'll see 
the continued deregulation of the uh, banking industry and the financial sector. You'll see the price gouging of the for-profit insurance and pharmaceutical corporations uh, and the denial of universal health care. And I want to be clear that the, uh, the failure to contain the pandemic is not solely uh, due to Trump's ineptitude. It's due to the closure or consolidation of hospitals across the country, the reduction of hospital beds to less than a million, uh, the fact that uh, you have uh, millions of Americans who can only get health insurance through their employers. And uh, of course, many of them, I think 40 some million have lost their jobs. Uh, you, you will not see a change in terms of the ability of dark money corporate money, oligarchic money to buy our elections. Uh, that's what we're going to get. Uh, and uh, we see that with the appointments. Uh, and that has long been, that's why Biden was anointed and he was anointed by the Democratic Party hierarchy for the nomination and why they once again thwarted uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign. Uh, you remember, if they didn't have this kind of corporate money, huge infusions of corporate money, and, and Obama, Biden got more of it than uh, uh, Trump, just as Obama got more corporate money than McCain did, uh, you, these people would, these figures wouldn't exist. Uh, Pelosi, Schumer, like Mitch McConnell, their power comes from being a conduit of that money to anointed uh, candidates. Uh, and when Biden was the senator from Delaware, which is where a lot of credit card companies are headquarters, uh, uh, he was uh, derisively in the Senate called Senator Credit Card. He abjectly served the interests of credit card companies like MBNA, which is the largest independent credit card company in the country, which, by the way, also employed his son, Hunter. That's what we're getting. So basically, we're getting more of the same uh, instead of uh, the change in hope that we, uh, that many progressive has, progressives have thought that they would get um, under another Democrat. Um, and, you know, you talked a little bit about Yugoslavia and your experience there covering uh, the economic crisis and what that did to society there. Talk to me about how that's taking place right here in America. I think you have to look at uh, how the country uh, has been uh, essentially bifurcated into warring demographics. Now, a lot of that is due to the media. Right. Because the media landscape, and Matt Tibby wrote a good book on this called Hate, Inc. And on one side of the cover is Sean Hannity and the other side is Rachel Maddow because they do the same thing, as Tibby points out. Um, so under the old system, uh, you had a kind of uh, domination by three major networks and uh, a few major newspapers like my old employer, the New York Times. Uh, all of that was shattered with the Internet. Uh, and people went after particular demographics uh, and catered exclusively to those demographics. That's what Fox News does, <laughs> but it's also it's what MSNBC does. I think 94% of the people who watch NBC identify as supporters of the Democratic Party. Uh, but then uh, publications like the New York Times have also fallen into this uh, partisanship. So uh, the Pew Research Center did a poll last summer and found that 91% of the readers of the New York Times identify as uh, Democratic Party supporters, 87% of the listeners to NPR. And 
<clears throat> and so by catering to that demographic in the same way the right-wing media caters to their demographic, you create two parallel narratives uh, and uh, both, I think, both narratives I think are fictitious. Uh, on, on the right wing is demonizing uh, Muslims and uh, immigrants and uh, liberals and uh, uh, I mean in this latest iteration with Giuliani, you know, Venezuela, Hugo Chavez has been dead since 2013. Um, uh, but the Democratic Party does the same. So they, in, instead of uh, uh, being self-critical or self-analytical and uh, grasping the great damage that they had done and their complicity in doing that damage to the working class, uh, they uh, slogged for two years this idea that Putin and Russia was responsible for the election of Trump, which isn't to say that Russia didn't interfere in the elections. I, I don't have proof one way or another, but I would not be surprised if it did, like China. I was overseas for 20 years, uh, the United States in six of those years in Latin America. There wasn't an election in Latin America we didn't interfere in. Uh, the same was true in uh, you know, all of the other countries I covered in 1996 when Boris Yeltsin uh, ran for reelection in Russia the Clinton administration uh, orchestrated a $10 billion IMF loan of which an estimated 1.5 billion of that went directly into Yeltsin's campaign because well, Yeltsin served uh, um, uh, American business interests uh, and that was a correct assessment. So I'm not saying that there was an outside interference, uh, but the idea that Trump is a product of uh, the Kremlin is, is, this, is really a form of demagoguery, which is no different from what we've seen uh, you know, Giuliani uh, do in the wake of this election. So in essence, the Trump operatives are just replicating the same kind of rhetoric and the same kind of absurdities that Hillary Clinton, uh, I mean, Hillary Clinton you know, calls WikiLeaks a Russian front. She called the third party, the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein, a Russian asset. Um, but it, is, it, it means that both factions of the ruling elite fail or unable, unwilling to face uh, their responsibility for what's happened, and that's exceedingly dangerous. And now, with uh, you know, fifty an estimated fifty-one million Americans in the last poll saying that they believe the elections were rigged uh, and that Trump actually won, uh, you're entering very dangerous territory, uh, accompanied, of course, by a very open attempt and inept, fortunately, but an open attempt on the part of the Trump operatives to stage what can only be called a coup. So you've seen the rise of violence, uh, the attempt to kidnap the governors of, uh, of Michigan and Virginia. Uh, the, the Proud Boys were stomping through the streets of Washington last weekend. Uh, that, that's with uh, hundreds of them with, I think four people were stabbed seriously, uh, dozens of arrests. Uh, you had at the end of August, uh, the shooting uh, by, uh, 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 of a Trump supporter by allegedly by an Antifa uh, supporter who was then gunned down by federal marshals unarmed outside an apartment complex in Lacey, Washington, Ryan, I'm talking about Rhino, of course, uh, in the same kind of state sponsored assassinations I used to see in El Salvador. So. Uh, all of it is very, very ominous. Uh, and the Republican Party is completely uh, complicit in, uh, in pushing a narrative which essentially served to discredit 
the system. And I watched that happen in Yugoslavia, and I know I know where it goes. Well, you actually talked about this sort of fascism um, about ten years ago when you wrote in your book "American Fascists: The Christian Right and the War um, on America." which was published in, I believe, 2006. So reading that book over 10 years ago at that time when, you know, uh, American fascism and right-wing extremism and, you know, Christian fascism in in America was basically hidden in plain sight because of Obama being president. Um, I think at that time, many people found those ideas provocative and extreme. But now in the age of Trump, Charlottesville, the Proud Boys, like you just described, and a surging far-right Um, It almost seems prophetic, (laughs) what you wrote at that time. A recent poll showed that 9% of Americans, that's 23 million people, have a positive view of fascism. Um, Presumably, you see the rise of fascism in this country as linked to the death of the liberal class and the rise in hopelessness. Can you explain that? Well, fascism uh, is always a product of a failed liberal class because, Mm -hmm. as Noam Chomsky points out, the role of the liberal class is to ameliorate the worst excesses of capitalism, uh, to carry out incremental and piecemeal reforms. So what happened when uh, the uh, capitalism broke down after the 1929 crash, you saw liberalism work uh, under the FDR administration. So massive unemployment, the government creates 12 million jobs, creates social security, uh, public works projects, uh, and, uh, and as Roosevelt said, that his greatest achievement was that he saved capitalism. After World War II, the military-industrial complex, which did not want to dismantle the weapon systems, needed a Cold War. When, we forget that after World War II, because of the German invasion of the Soviet Union, Russia was devastated. Even if it had wanted to expand into Europe, it couldn't. Uh, it certainly did, and this was all carried out in the uh, you know, with uh, Stalin and Churchill and uh, by carving up Europe, but Russia wanted that border zone for protection. They'd been invaded twice by Napoleon and then uh, uh, over a century later by uh, the Nazis. So, uh, but the, the, the Cold War narrative was uh, used quite effectively, uh, not only to uh, perpetuate what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex, which is now beyond control. We don't even debate weapon right. systems. No one, it's insane, yeah. of course. And half of all discretionary spending goes into the military budget. What, you know, despite these endless feudal wars in the Middle East now pushing 20 years, uh, I mean, all the people, all the politicians and generals who orchestrated these wars should be put on trial. It's the greatest strategic blunder in American history. And I speak as someone spent seven years in the Middle East. Um, so they went, they, they didn't just go after radicals, they went after the liberal class. And you had the rise of this deformed entity called the Cold War liberal. Uh, Henry Wallace and uh, George McGovern might have been two exceptions. They were both destroyed. Wallace in 48, he had been Roosevelt's vice president, McGovern in 72. When McGovern got the nomination, you saw the Democratic Party hierarchy unite with the Republican Party hierarchy to destroy McGovern and make sure Nixon was reelected. Um, and uh, that's of course what would have happened if Sanders had gotten the nomination, although the system was so fixed that that I think was an impossibility. Uh, but the destruction of the liberal class, and I wrote a book called Death of the Liberal Class that lays all this out, was myopic in that sense 
that it essentially unfettered uh, and created this unregulated corporate capitalism uh, that has now destroyed the country. Um, and it's supranational, has no loyalty to the nation state. Uh, it's global, uh, massive tax boycotts. I mean, under the Eisenhower administration, uh, the, the wealthiest individuals and corporations were taxed at 91%. Uh, now, corporations like Amazon and Jeff Bezos, of course, is the richest person in the world, they paid no federal income taxes. Zero, yeah. Uh, and yeah. in fact, they got money back from the federal government. So, but that's also true for Citibank and you know all sorts of other entities. So, um, Bank of America and others. So, uh, uh, and so essentially uh, any way to contain even modestly uh, unfettered capitalism, uh, which cloaked itself in the ideology of neoliberalism, David Harvey has written his book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, I think is probably the best explication of the economic absurdity of neoliberalism, um, but it was never meant to be economically rational. It always relied on these outliers like Hayek and this third-rate novelist, Anne Rand and Milton Friedman. I mean, these people are just lunatics, uh, but it justified the accumulation of wealth by the ruling oligarchic elite. In that sense, it's worked, uh, but it's created this kind of social inequality. So all of the recipe, the, the, you know, the recipe for the rise of a fascist state is there. And you're right. I was, a, I think, sensitive to the embers of fascism within the Christian right because I come out of a religious tradition. My father was a Presbyterian minister. My mother was a seminary graduate, uh, although a college professor, and I graduated from Harvard Divinity School. So uh, I was acutely aware of how uh, the Christian religion was being used, fusing the iconography and language of Christianity with uh, the iconography and language of the state to create uh, a heretical movement that uh, essentially sacralized imperialism and capitalism. Uh, I also was well aware that this had been done in Nazi Germany. My great mentor at Harvard, uh, James Luther Adams, uh, had been in Germany in 1935 and 1936, and he'd been at the University of Heidelberg, uh, including in the lecture hall where Heidegger began his lectures with the Nazi salute, and he dropped out and joined the underground so-called confessing church run by Niemöller and Albert Schweitzer and uh, Bonhoeffer. Um, and until he was expelled by the, he was arrested and expelled by the Gestapo. Um, but he, he immediately saw in the Christian right the similarities with the German Christian church, which was outlawed in Germany after the war. And that with the whole push to disenfranchise the working class, uh, he realized uh, uh, was exceedingly dangerous to uh, the open society, to a democratic system. He's the first person I ever heard, this was in the early 80s at Harvard, use the word fascist to describe the Christian right. Um, and of course, he proved very prescient. I mean, even all of us students at a time, although he's brilliant, he's certainly the, one of the most brilliant scholars I've ever studied with, um, thought, you know, even he was being a little excessive. Well, it turns out that um, he nailed it. And so I, you know, I think it's because of my tradition uh, because of Adams, um, and also because I'd spent 20 years outside the country and then came back and saw how this uh, fringe group that, uh, or it was a fringe group when I left the country had moved to the epicenters of power. I, uh, I was aware of how dangerous they are. So uh, Trump, of course, had has no ideological 
position of his own, but he's filled that void with the ideology of the Christian right. And uh, the Christian right is closely fused with these right-wing militias, those militia members. I think there were 18 of them that attempted to kidnap the governor in Michigan, uh, uh, had close ties with foundations run by Betsy DeVos uh, and Betsy DeVos's brother, of course, is Eric Prince, who founded Blackwater. So, um, you know, the, the uh, perpetuation of these policies under Biden, which is what I expect, uh, will essentially seed the ground for a competent fascist, someone like Tom Cotton, backed and supported by these forces. Uh, I think we will also, I'm, I fear, I hope I'm wrong, see an uptick of violence uh, uh, directed against uh, mainstream Democrats and uh, the media outlets that work on their behalf, like CNN. Uh, you know, we've already come close a few times. Remember that a couple of years ago, Trump supporter mailed pipe bombs to most of the hierarchy of the Democratic Party, along with CNN and other uh, and if they'd gone off, it would, but but eventually it's uh, it, it is going to happen. And, um, and you know, once that death spiral of violence starts, once you open that Pandora's box, uh, you can't control it. It controls you. Uh, I, I saw that in Yugoslavia. Nobody, people forget the origins of the war in Yugoslavia were these posturing uh, weekend warriors, overweight warriors, and camouflage carrying AK-47s, just like we're seeing here in the United States. Uh, but once the killing starts, then, um, uh, then it just spirals out of control. And I, and I think nobody in, in Yugoslavia had any idea uh, that they were gonna engage in the worst fratricide uh, in Europe, uh, the worst killing in Europe since World War II. And you know, you talk about how these attacks um, recently were against uh, people within the Democratic Party and like Democratic Party aligned media like CNN. But aren't people like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris aligned with the same agenda um, when Joe Biden's cabinet is filled with, you know, Bush era war hawks who would very much be okay with the rise of fascism in this country? Yeah, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, it, what, and I think that if you look back at uh, history and in particular Weimar, uh, you'll, you'll see how this plays out. So uh, the, the breakdown of liberal society, which, which took place in Weimar, especially after the 1929 crash. So you, you had the establishment liberals still running the country, uh, but they were hostage now to international banks who had given them loans. So they imposed draconian forms of austerity, including, of all things, abolishing unemployment insurance. And uh, the Nazis were considered buffoonish, in the same way that the Christian right or a lot of the Trump supporters are considered buffoonish by the industrial elites. Uh, but with the breakdown of the society and the rise of, of, of powerful radical movements, in particular the Communist Party, you saw the industrial elites fund, quite openly fund and back the Nazi party. And that's what happened. So it's always an uncomfortable alliance um, but the liberal class will always uh, turn when threatened uh, to those forces of uh, fascism that uh, end up consuming them. And again, you can look at Weimar. So you had uh, Frederick E. was after World War I, there was a breakdown, a series of 
left-wing uprisings, Spartacus Rebellion, etc., and you had the Social Democratic Party uh, of Germany in power, led by Frederick Ebert. Uh, and so in order to crush those uprisings, uh, which were a threat to the liberal class, they sided with the conservatives and the nationalists and created something called the Fry Corps. These were private paramilitary groups composed of demobilized soldiers and criminals and malcontents. So they ruthlessly crushed a series of uprisings in Berlin and Bremen, Brunswick, Hamburg, Leipzig, uh, other places. Um, and when they weren't uh, shooting communist and left-wing populists in the streets, they were carrying out all sorts of political assassinations, over 200, including the uh, murder of the foreign minister. Um, as well as terrorizing civilians. So the Fry Corps became the antecedents for the brown shirts, uh, which were led by Ernst Röhm, who had been a Fry Corps commander. Uh, and so I think that you're seeing uh, with the breakdown of society, we're already seeing the rise of this militarized Christian fascism uh, and all of the elements that go to exacerbating that breakdown political dysfunction a discredited liberal class, uh, mounting social inequality, uh, an out-of-touch, tone-deaf, oligarchic elite, uh, the, the fragmentation of the country into warring tribes, coupled with the increasing food insecurity and hunger, the unemployment, uh, which has all been exacerbated by our inability to cope with the pandemic, and then the rot and stagnation of political life these are all, this is the kind of cocktail that always leads to authoritarianism and fascism. And I expect the liberal elites, we're talking about self-identified liberals, because let's be clear, the Clinton uh, transformed the Democratic Party, in essence, into the Republican Party. Uh, the Democratic Party in Europe would be considered a far-right party, but we'll call them the self-identified right. liberals like Biden and Kamala Harris will immediately side with the most retrograde forces in the society if they feel threatened. Um, and, you know, if history is any, offers any warning, uh, uh, they will eventually be consumed by those very forces as well. Well, I wanna, I wanna talk a little bit about authoritarianism in this country and US empire. You know, you've been, you know, from Central America to the Middle East, you've seen close up the brutality um, of US empire. Um, and what they commit, what it commits around the world. Yet those tools of empire from surveillance to militarized uh, policing, they're increasingly being turned in on the domestic population, especially now amid this pandemic. Um, and they have been for a while, obviously. I mean, could you talk to me about this? Well, first of all, we have to define what empire is. Empire is the external expression of white supremacy. Uh, it is about the theft of natural resources and the subjugation of people of color. Um, and I, I just lost my closest friend, James Cohn, the great radical uh, theologian, the father of black liberation theology. And I think although James grew up in segregated Arkansas, and, uh, his life experience was different from mine. Um, he saw the worst of uh, of white supremacy, endured it as a boy. Um, and I saw it on the outer reaches of empire because it's the same phenomenon, it's the same animal. And uh, what happens is that 
and, and this just is true in every empire in Joseph Tainer's book, The Collapse of Complex Civilizations, uh, where I think he looks at 24 empires, lays this out. But uh, what happens is that all of your resources become diverted to the maintenance of empire. Um, so at the end of uh, the Roman uh, empire, you have, they're, they're running a one million man army, uh, which they can't afford and people are going hungry in the streets. Um, so what happens is that the, uh, the inability to control this military adventurism uh, eventually starts hollowing the country out from the inside. And you can drive through just about any American city and uh, know immediately what I'm talking about, the crumbling infrastructure, the uh, you know, empty factories that are boarded up or derelict, the, uh, all of the attendant crises that come with that, the opioid addictions and suicides, which are highest among uh, white middle-aged men, alcoholism, right. the gambling, the sexual sadism. I don't want to let that go because uh, I think this recent controversy with Pornhub illustrated that we're a completely pornified society. And we're, we're, not, we're talking about torture of women. Um, uh, all of this uh, moral and physical decay combined. Uh, and so uh, you need the harsher tools of control that have perf been perfected on the outer reaches of empire in order to maintain domestic control. Uh, and so all of the, uh, you know, a night raid, for instance, in Detroit by militarized police doesn't look any different from a night raid in Kandahar uh, because it's the same. Uh, the wholesale surveillance that uh, now we have police department running drones, um, the uh, legal mechanisms by which people are stripped of their rights if they live in marginal communities to process habeas corpus. 94% uh, of the people in our prison system never had a jury trial. They're just railroaded into prison, coerced. And I don't use that word lightly. I teach in a prison I have for 10 years. So I know this phenomenon, coerced into taking plea deals, even when they didn't commit the crime. Um, and then they're given sentences, which are three to four times longer uh, than anywhere else in the world. Uh, all of this, the, the forms of social control that you use in empire, which are uh, uh, essentially uh, military violence, militarized violence, wholesale surveillance and incarceration, those are the primary forms of social control uh, now that these forces have destroyed the country. And Thucydides wrote about that. He, uh, he, he wrote the tyranny that Athens imposed on others it finally imposed on itself. And of course, that's what empires do and that's what we're doing. And you've also uh, predicted a coming collapse as well. Can you, can you discuss that? Well, the collapse is already underway. I mean, I mean, just look around. Right. Uh, half of the country lives in I don't even know why, how that's debatable anymore. Uh, half of the country lives in poverty or near poverty. <clears throat> we have uh, thousands of people now lining up at food banks. Um, the utter inability on the part of the ruling elites to deal not first of all with the pandemic, but the economic fallout of the pandemic. And we're about to see millions of people uh, yes, starting yes. after the first of the year in danger of being evicted. Um, I mean, the the it, it's appalling. And uh, I mean, they will push people, you know, there, there, there's no, I think, real sense uh, among the ruling elites of how 
uh, desperate, enraged, legitimately enraged people are. Uh, and that bifurcation of the country, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately uh, for us, uh, weapons ownership has largely been criminalized for people in inner cities, but most of my family comes from Maine. Uh, and, you know, those, you know the, those houses are small arsenals. Uh, and uh, and they're, they have military-grade weapons. These are AR-15s. I mean, they're in essence military. You can't use them for hunting. I used to hunt. They're useless. The caliber of the bullet is too small to take down a deer. Uh, so they're really just designed for one reason. That's to shoot people. Um, so I think, again, that reminds me very much of Yugoslavia. Uh, where people had easy access to automatic weapons. Uh, so yeah, the, the, you know, the, the, we're far advanced. I mean, we've, the wars in the Middle East have been catastrophic. We've lost the war in Afghanistan. Uh, we <clears throat> went into Iraq. Iraq uh, was a kind of counterweight regionally to Iran. Uh, Iraq has become, in essence, uh, a client state certainly allied with uh, Iran. Not surprisingly, most Iraqis are Shia. Saddam ran a Sunni, brutal Sunni minority government. So, uh, you know, we've created one failed state after another, whether that's in Libya, Syria, or anywhere else. It's been absolutely catastrophic. I mean, aside from the fact that it's caused untold suffering to millions of people in terms of deaths and uh, injuries, displacement, uh, it, it, it's... Uh, and it's perpetuated at this point only because it's profitable to a certain sector within the American economy. It makes no rational sense anymore from a strategic perspective. And when you talk about this economic, or not economic, I guess, well, it is an economic collapse and just collapse of society, considering 2020 was bad for a lot of people, but what's coming for 20 in 2021 um, with the evictions and um, just this severe loss in our society uh, is very scary. Um, and we talked a lot about uh, the expansion of militarized police state and expansion of surveillance. Um, amid this pandemic right now, we know the state, <laughs> we know that our country is using um, this pandemic to also encroach on our rights and uh, you know, on our civil liberties. You've also, you've been writing uh, a lot about hope as well and rebellion. Um, some millennial viewers will likely have first encountered you and your work um, during the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011. Do you think another mass movement is necessary to avoid the worst? And is it possible in this pandemic? Well, we saw very courageous uh, movements take to the streets of American cities, like 170 cities after the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and others. So it is possible and it's necessary, but you also saw how the state responded. I think there were 117 journalists who were arrested. Uh, you know, they were using, uh, you know, live rounds at some points. I mean, uh, the, the suppression of those movements was uh, quite uh, severe. Uh, you saw uh, a green lighting of militia movements. This happened in Kenosha with Rittenhouse where his kid shows up with an automatic weapon, goes on a shooting spree right before the police had thanked him and other militia members for being there and given them uh, bottles of water. And then he, walk, he walks out with his hands up and people are shouting that he just shot a bunch of people and the police let him go. And then he 
he gets two million he's out on bail on a two million dollar bail because everybody donated i mean compare that to the gunning down of reinhold uh the antifa supporter in washington uh uh where you know black suvs pulled up at a high speed gunman jumped out federal marshals jumped out and shot him uh, so uh uh I think that those mass movements are the only mechanism we have left, um, but we can't be naive. We, we got a good glimpse of how the state will respond when it feels threatened and the alliances that they'll make when they feel threatened. Absolutely. And do you think that we can succeed in these social movements? That's the wrong question. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I know that if we don't try, we can't use the word over. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I think one has to be very, you know, the forces arrayed against us are powerful and strong. Uh, and the wholesale surveillance of the public dwarfs anything we've seen in human history. I covered the Stasi state in East Germany, uh, but that's, uh, you know, a child's play compared to what they have now in terms of uh, just complete and utter surveillance of the entire population. And when the government watches you 24 hours a day, uh, you can't use the word liberty. That's the relationship of a master and a slave. Um, so I think we have to be very, uh, we can't be self-delusional about uh, the very dire situation. We haven't even spoken about climate, the climate emergency. Uh, um, but if we don't resist, then there is no hope. I look at, at those, that kind of resistance as a moral imperative uh, and that of course we want to succeed, um, but to somehow not to resist in the face of what Immanuel Kant would call radical evil is to be complicit in that evil. And we have a responsibility not to be complicit in that evil, even, even if it was inevitable that we fail. Absolutely. And if there wasn't such a strong movement for social justice and change, there wouldn't be such a tight grip uh, by the state to control the free flow of information um, there wouldn't be such a massive surveillance state and police state. You're absolutely right. And I really appreciate you, um, Chris Hedges, for joining us today. Chris is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist um, who spent nearly two years, two decades, excuse me, as a foreign correspondent in Central America, the Balkans and the Middle East. He's host of On Contact on RT and author of the most recent book, uh, America, The Farewell Tour. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mona.